time to talk to Greg Donovan. Greg is the owner of Big Run Events um, and the founder and organiser of Birdsville's Big Red Bash. Today we're going to talk to Greg about the power of an event to promote a destination. The Birdsville Big Red Bash is the most remote concert on the planet. The camping area sits on the dried out bed of an ancient lake with the giant red sand dune as a backdrop, forming a natural amphitheatre. The area has a rich history of drawing people together. For thousands of years, people gathered at Birdsville to trade grinding stones, orca and weapons. At Big Red Bash, visitors can experience the desert by sandboarding down the dunes, riding a camel through the breathtaking scenery, kicking up some dust, boot scooting on the desert floor or throwing on their drag rags and joining in the race that starts at the top of Big Red Bash or competing in the fashions in the desert. Now let's chat to our friend, Greg Donovan. So yeah, the first one was just to give some background and context. Yeah, I'd love you just to give us uh, a quick rundown on the Big Red Bash journey. Okay, yeah, sure. So I guess, um, you know, the, the main thing is that we really never started out uh, with the end goal in mind of, of developing a what's now massive, you know, world-class music festival. It was just really, um, you know, we had a running event Big Red Run, we got John Williamson out, uh, sung a few songs around the campfire, a few people came along and uh, that's sort of the genesis for people. Uh, the people who did come along said, this, isn't this a fantastic place to have a bit of music out here in the desert? The atmosphere is great. And, uh, you know, then I guess from there the little light bulb went on in the head and thought, well, you know, we managed to do this, let's, let's see where we might be able to take it. You know, never ever thinking it will get to where it has got to now. So, you know, we, we decided, well, we're going to drag around that thing production gear out we're going to you know all of this may as well let's see if we can get a couple of few more artists and, and do this thing over a couple of days and and just sort of see what happens basically you know like uh, and everybody said well you know you're crazy that's a stupid thing to do how can you run a you know a festival a music festival so far from any population you know it costs so much money to put it on out here drag all the artists out drag everything out and where are the people going to come from to you know so far away that to go to a music festival out here so you know, there were certainly a lot of doubters, but I sort of thought, well, you know, Birdsville is a bit of a destination. It's a bucket list thing. And, you know, if they can get 6,000 people to, to come and watch some horses run around a track, they, you know, you put on some good music and hopefully we'll get and build up a bit of a crowd over time. So that was 2013. We had John Williamson. 2014, we decided to go for two days and put a lot of money and time and effort into it. And, um, you know, we ended up attracting about eleven or 1,200 people, which was... Uh, uh, way short of what we needed to cover our costs. And, uh, you know, I guess at that point in time, the, the sort of thought to myself, well, yeah, maybe all these people who were saying it's a stupid idea were pretty right. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe I uh, should forget the whole silly idea and just get on with the running events. But um, I guess something sort of happened pretty soon after that. I, um, I got back to, you know, I was doing a normal job at the time. This wasn't my job. It was something I was doing on the side. I got back to uh, my normal office job. Uh, sort of a week or so after that event in 2014 to find myself made redundant after a 20-year career in senior executive position. I no longer had a job, a uh, senior job. And uh, so that sort of uh, that sort of becomes a bit of a turning point in your life in a lot of ways. You go, well, what am I going to do now? Do I actually really want to work in a senior job anymore, reporting to people and being told what to do and when to do it, how to do it? Or do I move on and try and sort of create something that, you know, I'm really passionate about and and love doing myself and I guess that's what what I did and you know working in a senior position for 20 years and getting a decent sized payout 
uh, I thought, well, that's that's great. I'll uh, I can now afford to pay off the losses from the event I've just done, and uh, and the rest I'm going to invest in in uh, Jimmy Barnes. And uh, well, I thought Jimmy Barnes would be a much better performing investment than a balanced superannuation fund. So uh, that that's sort of that's where we went. We hired Jimmy Barnes for uh, uh, 2015. You know, I really wanted to. Uh, move away from the perception of the event being a country music festival and a lot of people viewed it as being a country music festival. We started off with John Williamson, you know, next year we had Casey Chambers and some country acts and also some rock acts and I thought, well, there's so many country music festivals all around the country that we need to be different to that. So I wanted to sort of move it to the rock sort of genre and, uh, uh, you know, which has a much broader appeal than country and I uh, thought, well, might as well go straight to the top and, and get Jimmy on board and... Uh, <laughs> That's what we did in 2015, and once we did that, word sort of started to spread. Oh, Jimmy Barnes is playing in the Simpson Desert. You know, that's going to be pretty cool. Let's see how it goes. So that was 2015, and our crowd sort of nearly tripled to over 3,000 people, and uh, I guess that was a bit of a turning point, if you like, a uh, turning point or a tipping point perhaps to say, well, yeah, look, this is this has got some uh, legs, you know, and let's see where we can take it from there. So. And then each year it's just been an evolving journey where we continue to invest more and more money and time and resources and people and everything into the event to grow it and to make it the best we possibly can. I think back in 2015 we had, uh, I think we had about 30 volunteers organised and they were just volunteers who were coming out to help with Big Red Run and we said, can you stay up, stay on after and help us with this concert we've got on? And, uh, you know, now we've moved to the point where we've got, you know, it's a completely separate event from the running event and we have, you know, 450 volunteers and, you know, 60 crew and contractors and everything else that goes with it. So, um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey and an unlikely one. And it's, uh, you know, I don't think anyone could ever expect you would start off with a goal of having a 9,000 person, you know, rock music festival, three day rock music festival in the desert. It just seems totally bizarre and unlikely, but that's sort of where we found ourselves. Almost a little crazy. Yeah, very crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love the story. So it's challenging enough to run a festival, as you know, even in Sydney, let alone somewhere like Birdsville or even Longreach, when you talk about regional festivals and events, there's loads and loads of challenges. But I can't even begin to imagine how many challenges there are with, you know, a festival that is now classed as the most remote music festival in the world. So what are the key challenges for the event? I think it's, you know, distance obviously is the key and it's a matter of, getting everything we need out there, all of the gear, all of our people and everything out there. I mean, we can't, if we've forgot something, we can't just go down the road and get it. It's, um, if we've forgot it, we've forgot it. We're not going to get it. Um, so, you know, we've got multiple, you know, road trains and trucks coming from uh, every corner of Australia. You know, most of the capital cities bringing gear and equipment in and, and I guess it's just the logistics and planning behind that. But, you know, it's also the risk management side of things, being so remote. You know, risks in a lot of areas increase, so we have to look at how we manage those risks. And we have a team of people who are, you know, specialised in sort of outback remote area operations who who help us put together a full risk management plan around that. But, you know, the distance, it's getting all the artists in and out. You know, we've, we've got to have charter planes to bring them into and out of Birdsville from, you know, various cities. And, it's you know, it's a four-hour flight from Melbourne or a four-hour flight from Sydney in the sort of type of planes, the 30-odd 30, 30 of planes we use to get them in and out. And it's everything else that goes with that. I mean, the site itself has no facilities. You are in the middle of the desert. There's no power. There's no water. There's no sewerage. There's no communications. There's, 
there's literally nothing. So we sort of everything we have to do, we have to create from bare ground pretty much. And being so far from Birdsville, 40 odd kilometres west of Birdsville, you know, Birdsville's our, our closest supply line, if you like, where a lot of stuff we do happens in Birdsville. But, you know, we've got to operate out of Birdsville, but out to the side as well. So getting things and people in and out, obviously getting. 9,000 people down a single dirt road into the site and back out again, you know, is challenging. And everything to do with running a, a big music festival on a big sort of dirt and sandy area causes a whole lot of challenges as well. So it's um, there's multiple challenges on so many different levels and every year we learn <laughs> so much more about what to do and, and especially about what not to do and how to overcome some of these things. And so there is a huge amount of planning and uh, detailed planning and, and expert team that goes into into doing that. But I think, you know, to be able to sort of wave the flag and say, yes, we are the most remote festival in the world, music festival in the world, it's it's a pretty um, it's a pretty cool thing. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, you mentioned before 450 volunteers. Yes. That's, that's impressive. Correct. You know, one of the biggest struggles that um, I see with festivals, as I mentioned before, is the ability to attract volunteers. So I'm really interested in that. Like you obviously don't have much of a challenge with volunteers or do you and how do you how do you get so much support from your volunteers because I was so impressed you know the the final morning when you guys were packing up so I came down just before we left to have a little sticky beat I don't know it was probably 10 o'clock in the morning the site was gone you know it was pretty much seriously pretty much cleaned up apart from those banker toilets the stage was gone everything was gone like it was super impressive so it's not the volunteers, but it's then managing the volunteers to make sure they've got that efficiency and capability to do the job as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we do put a lot of time into our whole volunteer side of things. Obviously, you can't run an event of this size and scale, you know, without a good team of volunteers. Obviously, we've got our core crew and a, and a good sized cook crew and paid staff that, that work on the event. But we have put a lot of effort into developing our volunteer a force over the over that period of time and you know look I, I can't give you any real reason why we are able to so easily attract so many volunteers in such a remote area but you know I think the event has become popular and it's it's the word of mouth amongst you know the grey nomads and people who, who like mm-hmm. to travel the country and are looking for volunteer experience and I think the tickets are you know are, I won't say they're expensive but they're not cheap either you know 400 460 dollars for a ticket people can come and do you know, 14 or 15 hours work and their ticket's covered and they get a great camping spot and they get to um, be involved with the event and see what happens behind the scenes and meet a whole lot of other volunteers. So I think it's, um, you know, even though they're not paid in, in cash, they get, uh, you know, more than their value's worth in experience, uh, in access to the concert and tickets and that sort of stuff. But, you know, on top of that, we do provide a lot of support for the volunteers, a lot of information right throughout the whole period in the lead-up uh, some very, you know, very um, good training for them. We have a team of five volunteer coordinators at the event who basically manage the volunteers and manage the shifts and train them in various areas. You know, we separate the volunteers into various teams doing doing different styles of work and uh, we have a really great volunteer system, database and IT system that allows volunteers to come in and choose their shifts when they apply to volunteers. So it's not as though they just volunteer and turn up and we tell them what to do it's they know exactly what we're doing beforehand they know all of their shifts uh, we spend time on the phone with every volunteer in the lead up so and we talk to them about jobs involved make sure that they're comfortable with um, you know with things and, and that their capabilities 
are suitable for each role. You know, we don't want people who might have a bad back or some sort of injury in roles that involve some sort of physical you know, work and so forth. And, you know, we try and create, you know, roles for people in our merchandise team who might have had retail experience and are good at that sort of thing. So a huge amount of effort and management actually goes into the into the whole volunteer side of it. And, and I think we do a survey of volunteers after the event and we get all of their feedback, um, not only get them to rate their experience and across all of the areas, but also give us suggestions for um, things that we should do better or differently and all of those suggestions then feed back into our, into our post-event review and, and uh, you know, a good portion of those um, suggestions uh, that we can reasonably implement uh, are all implemented. So we actually listen to what they tell us. You know, they're the ones out there on the front line with the experience and you know, it's, it's valuable feedback that we get. So that's all really important. I mean, Birdsville's only a small town of sort of 100-odd people, so we, we don't really get any volunteers from the local community. Most of the local community are busy, you know, running their businesses and, and trying to look after all the tourists that are coming through their town. So um, all the volunteers virtually come from every corner of Australia, pretty much, who are, who are travelling. Yeah, I love that. Look, I guess, you know, an, another challenge must be you're based in Sydney, right? So, you know, this is not just about organising the most remote music festival in the world. You're also doing it remotely, you know. So does that have any challenges or with technology and everything these days it's quite simple or is it easier being based in Sydney to actually do the planning and organising and preparation? Yeah, I think nowadays with the technology uh, as it is and, you know, being located in a major city enables us to do a lot of stuff that we couldn't probably do if we were in Birdsville. And we don't have any issues with it now. We've really got a great relationship with uh, the community in Birdsville and all the key stakeholders in in Birdsville. So we sort of feel like we're part of the Birdsville family, if you like, or community. Um, We're always speaking to people there and in communication with them. So even though we're geographically distant, we we do work closely with the town and the community. And we're now very familiar with, you know, the infrastructure in Birdsville and the site and everything else so that, you know, we don't necessarily need to be there throughout the year to, to make the festival work. You know, I guess the structure of the, the structure that we run the festival under it's uh, you know it's run under a small company structure, so we're not we don't have a committee, which in some ways is good. Sometimes committees can present challenges, and you know sometimes it's all based around consensus. And uh, whereas we can take risks and make decisions that committees probably wouldn't take, and our whole sort of way we've developed this festival is to is to work in an area that's probably well outside our comfort zone or most people's comfort zones and committees find it pretty hard to to do that and you know even even larger companies with boards of directors and that sort of stuff find it pretty hard to to throw money at things and do things that seem a bit bizarre and crazy so you're being small and nimble and uh, being able to willing to sort of take chances and try new things and take risks is is really been a key part of us you know being able to move so quickly from where it began to where we are now yeah and you can see that look I, I can totally appreciate that you know just being agile and flexible enough to be able to make quick decisions and take risk around investment and that leads in well to my next question you know you've taken some risks over the years obviously I mean putting your redundancy package into Jimmy Barnes <laughs> I reckon that was a pretty good investment, that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine a committee doing that. Has there ever, ever been a thought or a point um, where you thought, oh, shit, have I done the right thing? 
this is not going to work or, you know, I, I don't know if we should keep going. And I, I guess perhaps that kind of leading into the Jimmy Barnes year might have been that time. But did you ever have those kind of thoughts or doubts? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we um, you know, there's no, we're not sort of treading some well-worn path here. We're, we're sort of blazing a, our own trail, so to speak. So, you know, in the, into 2015, leaving into Jimmy Barnes, you know, we made huge, huge investments into that event to take it forward. Uh, you know, we had a small number of people the prior year. We lost a lot of money. And, uh, you know, a lot of advice was, well, you know, you don't need to get such high-profile artists. Just get lower artists and keep it low-key and don't spend very much. And that's not really my nature. I thought we've either got to go hard or go home. And so I decided to just pour everything we had into that and keep our fingers crossed that it would work. I mean, we didn't even launch that year till four or five months before the actual event because, you know, I was sort of umming and ahhing about whether we should continue on or what we should do and I finally, you know, made the decision, no, let's just go for it. And, uh, you know, it took a while that year. We, we Ticket sales sort of started off okay and then sort of petered out a bit and I was really nervous that, you know, things were not going to turn out so well. But in the sort of last month or, or six weeks before the festival, we, you know, we had quite a good surge in ticket sales and, and that really got us across the line, not that we made any money in that year either, but because we'd increase our investment substantially and the numbers were still not where we needed them to be to make uh, cover our costs. But, you know, we knew that we'd actually passed a bit of a tipping point and we got, you know, the, this can work. It's, it's you know, look at how many 3,000 people coming out. This is this has got to have some sort of legs. And then, uh, then I think the word just spread after that and the next year because uh, we got Jimmy Barnes back again and then we got Paul Kelly and he's so popular and, before we know it, we, we had 7,000 people, 7,000 people signed up and we sold out three months before the event and it's, well, wow, how, that's pretty cool. And uh, But, you know, that year we had some other challenges as well and uh, we had rain, pre-event rain, and which meant we were not, not able to use the venue out at Big Red. And uh, uh, back in 2016 when that happened, we hadn't even been fairly new and not having a lot of finance and money, we hadn't even thought about weather-related insurance. So... You know, I was camped out at Big Red a couple of weeks before the event, the running event, and it was pouring down rain. The whole place was a mud bath and, you know, it was sort of a bit of a panic because, you know, pretty much had our house on the line if we couldn't pull something off. And uh, so we sort of made a decision, well, let's, uh, let's, you know, we can't have it out here. Let's let's move it into Birdsville. And the morning after the rain, I, I went into Birdsville from out at Big Red and uh, donors and some other people and pretty much said, uh, look, we've got a few issues. Um, do you mind if we hold this uh, thing on your oval? <laughs> And uh, they agreed, and uh, so then we had to sort of reinvent the whole logistics of the event to run it bang smack in the middle of a in a town within sort of a you know couple of weeks and well not less than a couple of weeks eight days or something and then uh, you know on top of that that year because we had the Coop Creek flooding and all Birdsville track and all the roads were closed and we were on the phone to the council about when the rivers are going to go down all our trucks were coming but they couldn't get through and. So we were on the phone to all of our trucks. You've got to go around the other way. You've got to go up, you know, take a detour. It's going to take an extra day and a half. But when you get up to near Winton, there's a river. You won't be able to go across there, but it's going to go down tomorrow. So don't worry. And it's just, it was just, yeah, mind-boggling trying to manage the logistics of, of that year. And, you know, that's another challenge of working out back when there's dirt roads and rivers that flood and transport challenges and site challenges and all that. But I guess having overcome that in 2016, we... Uh, you know, we learned a huge amount of lessons. We knew that, you know, we had a backup plan that would actually work and we knew that we should probably take out wet weather insurance from there on, which which we did and we you know, continue to do to this day. Obviously, that increases the cost of things quite a bit. So, yeah, it's been a challenging journey. It's had its, its uh, hair-raising moments, but 
that I guess that's uh, that's the way things work when you sort of you know say blazing new trails. It's it's not you're not following a some well worn path or, or thing. Mm. And I think one of the comments you made is really important. You at the start of that you said you could have just and people were actually suggesting to you just get low level artists. You know, just get low level artists and you know don't spend much money. But you took the risk and said, no, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this well. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges with festivals and events these days is, you know, that, you know, fear of taking risk and and that real lack of creativity in terms of how do we take our event to the next level. And I think some events, I mean, you look at events even like another one I love is Dark Mofo down in Tassie, you know, big risk takers. And I guess it's a similar thing. I mean, it's got a lot of, you know, entrepreneurship behind it, you know, the people saying let's do this, let's challenge everyday thinking and do things a bit different. And I just think that's one of the biggest challenges with the events that I'm dealing with these days when they've got committees that are conservative and they're really scared to actually think outside the box or take a little bit of risk and and that's what's holding them back. And it's a tough one, you know, in terms of how do you deal with that because I see all of these other festivals like yourself that are more privately driven that are kicking goals you know because it's a different model it's a different structure it's more agile they're risk takers and just seem successful yeah that's that's what we find like you know i'm i'm uh, i don't hang around too long making decisions decisions get made pretty much straight away generally your first decision is the right one most of the time your, your gut tells you or your, or your intuition or whatever tells you the decision you, you know a lot of people will come up to a difficult decision and it'll sit on that decision for a month or two months or too long. But, you know, we've got a, lots of things happening. Decisions need to be made day by day and we make those decisions and, and sort of move on. And, yeah, we develop new stuff. Like, a, you know, we, we want to see this festival evolve and it has evolved a lot over the last couple of years. You're probably attending this year. You would have seen a lot of activities uh, before the music and they're, they're sort of things that, you know, are sort of dreamt up. So well, we want, you know, people just don't want stalls and bits and pieces. So I wanted to create crowd participation type activities um, so people can all get together and participate in fun stuff before the music starts and that's where this drag race um, RFDS drag race started from back in uh, we started that in 2016 actually it was a bit of a crazy idea I had and again my wife particularly said that's a stupid idea how many people are going to do that you're going to get like three people turn up and then then this was when we moved into Birdsville and then on the morning of the race, you know, a hundred people turned up in drag. Everyone's going, what's going on here? And we, uh, we had to, we had to run them around the block. You know, we had a hundred drag queens running around the block in Birdsville past the pub and around the oval and everything. So that was a lot of fun. And then, you know, this year we've come up, you know, with some youth stuff. We worked with the RFDS and we've done the, the world record, Guinness world record for the, um, Nutbush dance, and that's all good fun. And, um, you know, another day we had the air guitar championships for the kids and adults and, you know, just things like that. That It's lighthearted fun, you know, take the Mickey sort of fun out back. You know, that's what we sort of want to create an atmosphere of just fun and frivolity and, you know, people having a good time and not taking themselves too seriously. So, you know, that's the vibe we want to create. And, uh, yeah. It creates a nice community as well, like when you're out there. I think that's what it does. Like everyone's camping, you all become like part of this community for that time that you're out there and you see people, you meet people, then you see them at different things. And uh, Yeah, well, that's what we do try to create. We are, you know, people come from all over Australia, but we try and, you know, we try and create a community feel and atmosphere around the event and that's why I've set up things like our Facebook group for the, 
travelling to the Big Red Bash page. We've got 10,000 people on that now and they can all, you know, share information and share their journey and pictures and advice and everything else, you know, which is great so that we don't have to, we don't have so many people contacting us asking us stuff. They just ask each other and, and generally someone's got the answer to whatever they, whatever they want or, you know, they're sharing their journeys, their experiences. So people travelling and, you know, I'm travelling from somewhere else but I can see wherever else people's travelling and, and then people saying, oh, I'm in such and such tonight. Is there any bashes around? Let's, you know, hook up and have a drink. And so it really creates a community feel around the event, which is fantastic. Look, we've answered a few of those other questions as we've been going, but one I really wanted to ask was around your state government support. So, you know, you've managed to secure good support from the state government. I'm really interested to know how much effort you had to put in. You know, a lot of events will say, oh, we can't get funding support. What do we need to do to get funding support? You know, and I'm sure that yours wasn't just good luck. But how did that come about? What did you have to do? to prove to the state government that this event was worthy of significant support? Well, I guess um, the state government, we, we, we obviously had to prove the value of the event in terms of tourism generation of tourism benefits and dollars coming through the state. And we did that from early on. We, we've had support of some nature from even back in 2014 when we first kicked off back then. So I think we were sort of lucky enough, or Birdsville, where it's located, is is a great place to have an event for tourism benefits because people are going to be travelling through so many towns and, and areas to get to Birdsville. So, you know, it probably has more tourism generates more uh, dispersion, travel dispersion and tourism dispersion than, than, say, an event that would be close to the city. And the, obviously tourism, Outback Tourism realises that and Birdsville Races is a good good example of, of that. And so they could see the benefit of having a, trying to develop an event in Birdsville and uh, we always worked well with them. We were transparent in with them in terms of our what we wanted to do and how much money we had to spend and they could see that we had, had a good team in place. They could see that we are managing the event well. We also created, we worked with a PR firm who helped us create, you know, a lot of media around the event. So we were getting, you know, good media coverage, which obviously the tourism Authorities like to see, you know, the regions and their areas uh, getting that media coverage and, and I guess then just built relationships with the key people and stakeholders in Tourism Events Queensland. And I think the main thing we've done is, is really what we've promised that we were going to deliver, we've generally over or always we've over-delivered over and above what we ever committed to or whatever, whatever we've told them. And I think, you know, that sometimes I've, I've heard of other events who make brand promises about this and that and you know, numbers and benefits which come well short of the mark and, you know, we really didn't want to be in the position to, to be seen to be overestimating or over-exaggerating what we could do. So we, we just took it from the, from the basis of, well, this is this is what I think we can do and, and, and you know, work hard to, to, to do that and to overachieve those targets. So, you know, I think it's, it's just, um, you know, you've got to build confidence and trust. It's like any relationship, whether it's with a business to business or, tourism or with your with your stakeholders or patrons you just got to build confidence in tr- confidence and trust and you do that by being honest and and doing a good job and and delivering on your um delivering on your commitments mm, yeah great i mean it does take a lot of time obviously to do the submissions and the reports and you know put it all together and the good thing now is we, we've just had a or from this year we've got a three-year funding package so it means i don't have to do the <laughs> all the resubmissions every year to, to get the following year's funding and we can work also a little bit in advance knowing that we have access to that funding and we can take that into account, whereas the timing 
We used to not know whether we will get funding until after we launch our event and committed to our effectively committed to our budget and keep our fingers crossed that we get support. So it's good to have the certainty around a three-year package. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Greg, if you had one tip for another for other regional rural festivals, what would it be? I think find your point of difference and really focus in on that and work hard and leverage your, your point of difference. Like our point of difference was a rock concert in the desert, which is a pretty major point of difference. But, you know, I think every community and every event can have their point of difference that is attractive and will will attract people. Obviously, then you build around that point of difference to build a, build a sort of an overall experience, you know. So it's, it's but to me, it's that you've got to have, you know, something that I guess excites people and gets them in or, or whatever. So, yeah. Absolutely. There's like this, at the moment, there's a lot of festivals in regional parts of Australia that are just following that standard model. You know, we need market stores, a kid's area, local produce and a cooking tent and this. Like there's this unfortunate situation where they're not kind of identifying their point of difference or focusing on a point of difference and just kind of almost creating that cookie cutter approach. Um, So I think that's a really good tip, you know, finding that point of difference and focusing on it and not getting distracted by what others are doing around you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, yeah, we we don't follow any other trends or people. We just you know come up with our own ideas and what we think will work, and you know we do that. You know, obviously, been to a couple of other festivals and looked at bits and pieces, but you know, you really you just want, really want to focus on what you know what your vision is and and how you can how you can achieve that. Yeah, excellent. Now, Greg, I've just got a few more questions that are more related to marketing. So. The first question I have is, um, are you happy to share with us your marketing approach um, for the most remote music festival in the world? Yeah, I'm more than happy to sort of talk about how we do things and, and obviously there's some challenges or some differences as to, to how we do things. And I guess the main thing when we started this whole journey, you know, was the, the old thing, how are you going to attract people from to this festival? What's, what's your target market and how are you going to reach them? You know, so I guess we, I guess with... Um, Normally, it's um, you know people might focus on a particular region in a market. You know, you're doing an event in you know Wagga, something for instance, and you might say you might focus on oh, I'm going to you know focus on the my district, or I might focus on trying to get people from Melbourne, or you know, and try and focus in on those areas. But we didn't, we really couldn't do that. I mean, our we didn't have a geographic focus other than Australia, so we had to really you know. So, well, how do you spread your dollars when you're marketing across the broader Australia? So then we. And we move to the type of person, you know, and their interests and, and trying to, um, you know, trying to connect with those people. So, you know, we developed a partnership with Pat Callan and Mr. 4x4 and, you know, we looked at his, their markets and, you know, caravanners and four-wheel drivers and people who love travelling throughout Australia and trips and, and that sort of stuff. And, you know, so we used their, I guess, leveraged off their, their database and their, and their, um, their sort of, um, their background as to how they get their customers and and sort of work with that and then we you know developed a, a relationship with ARB who have a you know half a million dollar data half a million people database of people who have wide four-wheel drive stuff and four-wheel drive equipment and that they've got stores all over Australia and a wide reach and database so we tried to we tried to do it more like that is to work with partners who could spread the word through the type of people who are likely to travel to an event like this and then we just started to you know, then after that, obviously, social media is a great tool for reaching 
databases in a wide ranging basis and uh, you know that we've had a huge amount of success with with our social media channels and um, you know we get huge reach and leverage and we get a lot of engagement from social media as well we've got I think 53,000 people on our Facebook now so we're more and more moving into that digital you know social media digital area uh, nowadays and I guess uh, the other thing we did to the general media is from the early days we decided well this is such a unique out there sort of event there would be some sort of media interest in covering it and tried to attract media to attend the event and to cover that you know cover that free so we ran sort of hosted media programs and invited media to the event itself which which worked out well because then they went away and wrote stories in magazines and newspaper or they did tv stories we've had you know creek to coast and uh, pat killen's four by four shows and you know all through adventure shows and so we've been featured in a lot of these tv shows and they're the sort of TV shows as well that the people who are likely to come to our event will watch. I think last year we had a, what's it called? <laughs> Alzheimer's moments. The, um, the caravan show. What's the caravan show? Anyway, they, they did a three-part series on travelling the Big Red Bash. So travelling throughout Queensland, it was Mecca and, and uh, Tanya Kernigan and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, so, so a three-part TV series on that. And, you know, this year we've had Queensland Weekend to come out. They're going to do a... Not a big deal, but they'll do some reporting. We had a whole lot of other media. So we've sort of focused on that rather than spend a lot of money on things like TV advertising and radio advertising, which it's really hard to gauge effectiveness of that. And then you reach, you're paying to reach a lot of people who would have no interest in going to Birdsville for any reason, let alone, you know, for listening to music. So try to be, yeah, try to identify the type of person we're going to attract and, and the sort of things that they would be following and looking at. So, Greg, can you tell us a bit about who your ideal event attendee is? Like, it's obvious that there's a, a focus on families, which I love, but I'm keen to understand you're totally right from a marketing point of view. You know, if you know your customer well and you can do more targeted, focused marketing towards that customer, then obviously you'll get better benefit. So how did you actually identify who the ideal event attendee would be for Big Red, Big Red Bash? I guess we didn't in the early days and that sort of understanding of our customer base evolves over the years and now we've got a pretty or really good idea of what our target customer base looks like. But um, you know, as I said, we started marketing to people who like four-wheel driving and travel and the type of music we programmed tended to uh, appeal to, you know, people in their 40s, 50s and 60s. You know, we knew that we were never going to be a young person's music festival and it's really hard to run person's music festivals because music tastes and, and trends come and go so quickly, whereas, you know, people in their 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, they love the music they would grew up to in the 80s and 90s and whatever. So, and that doesn't change, you know, they still love the music now, uh, that sort of music now. So I think, you know, that we very quickly identified also that, you know, it's people in their 40s and 50s who are starting to, to uh, you know, you know, got a look, you know, money, they're in a good part of their career or their kids are growing up and they want to travel. So they're the sort of people we, we really uh, market to, you know, as well as families. We really, you know, I, I grew up with our kids. We always took them travelling, not just to the Gold Coast and all that, but took them right around the outback and, you know, through Australia to see all, all, all of the inland Australia and Aboriginal communities and that. So, you know, so we really wanted to be a family-friendly event and um, so we do a lot of promotions to families and you know families might be you know people in their 30s or even early 40s mid 40s with with um young families and and kids i guess much like yourself who you know like to travel to new places and, and do new things and 
yeah, so that's that's our, our target. Yeah, it's a really good crowd. We don't have, uh, you know, any drunken disorderly issues or any security issues or anything like that. And I think, you know, with the presence of so many children as part of the crowd, people, you know, people behave because they know there's kids around. And um, so it all works, it all works really well. It's a great, great crowd. And the police, even the police, uh, local police say this is, you know, this is probably the best crowd, you know, for an event of this size that we'll ever, ever experience. It's, they don't have any dramas at all, which is great. Yeah, that's wonderful. I certainly experienced it. It was just fun. It was just good fun. You know, people were having fun and there was no, never any kind of issue around, you know, drunken behaviour or it was just people having fun. Yeah, that's um, it. Let me to hand out and having fun. And I think the other good thing is because Birdsville's such a long way away, people are there, generally they're there on a holiday, whether it's in a shorter holiday or they're incorporating it as part of a longer, you know, trip they might be doing. They're all there. On some form of holiday, and which really lifts the mood, you know, because if you uh, if you go to a concert on a day on the green or something on a Sunday afternoon, and you know you've got to go back to work on the Monday morning, maybe it's not such a the mood's a bit different to when you're in the outback and you, you know you've, you've travelled up and you had a holiday and you're going to be travelling home for a few days and not going back to work straight away. So I think that that in itself and just the epicness of the trip to get there, and people you know people recognise that and people you know appreciate appreciate that, and uh, you know it's a bit of a you know, badge of honour just to get yourself to the to Birdsville and to the Bash, so yeah. which is great. Absolutely. Um, so partnerships are critical to any festival, but particularly remote festivals like Big Red Bash. How much effort do you place on marketing partnerships and collaborations? Uh, yeah, we put a lot of effort into that. So we've got you know a number of commercial partnerships which which are mutually beneficial for, for themselves and for ourselves. So. You know, even like the Outback Queensland Outback Tourism Association, uh, we work closely with them, and uh, you know, with their Outback Mates program that they've introduced, and which gives people benefits, range of benefits right throughout the Outback. So, you know, we have a program in place with them to pass on Outback Mates membership to our event attendees, Pat Callan, and as well, we have a partnership with them to pass on pass on some of their publications to event attendees. But yeah, and I guess uh, you know, I guess we work with with a range of people in, in a partnership sort of capacity, our sponsors and supporters, Don Tina Shy Council, obviously, you know, is an important partnership that we need to work with. So it's a huge part of an event like this. You can't do anything like this without, you know, the support of those key partners and, and the mutual, mutually beneficial, you know, way you, you work together. The thing I love, Greg, is how you really promote Big Red Bash as an experience from the day you leave home to the day you get back home. You know, it's not just about being at Big Red Bash. You know, it's the whole journey. And I think the Facebook group adds to that as well because as you're, you know, on the road heading to Big Red Bash, there's already conversation happening between people that are going to the event. And I think also the impact that has on the broader Outback Queensland communities, you know, because it is such a journey. Like I know Charleville have really jumped on board to do that halfway shinding shindig event that they do um, and they're growing that every year which is fantastic but I, I guess I'm really interested to understand how that came about or did that just naturally happen in terms of creating that journey experience because people have to drive a long way to go to Big Red Bash. Yeah well that, uh, that sort of came from the early days when we realised well you know why are people going to come here well there's two reasons there's there's one it's the actual event itself but it's the you know it's the experience of the trip to get there and back. So we really, in all of our marketing and in everything we do, we, we look at the whole event as, you know, as the journey and the destination and try and 
leverage that, you know, so we talk about all the things they can do on the way there and back. You know, we work with uh, other towns to support and promote things that they want to do to take advantage of people travelling with the best coming through their towns. You know, Charlie was a good example and Quilpie, although they didn't do anything this year, they have in the past and will again. Windora uh, put entertainment on at the pub and do stuff. You know, talking to the people down in Maree who are going to start doing some stuff from next year. Baduri, like you look at your Baduri, they had the camel races, which is the mm. end up. That used to be a little event with maybe 300 people maximum, and now they're drawing well over 2,000 people to the camel races. So, you know, to us, that's great. The community loves it. You know, they've got now got a big camel race event, you know, and, and for us, it's great because it's just another experience that we can promote as an add-on to the Big Red Bash, you know, or once you once you finish with the bash, you know, drive up to Baduri on Friday, you've got the camel races on the, on the Saturday and and the Bullier, we, we've sort of promoted the little camel race journey, such so for during one weekend, Bullier the next weekend. But even a lot of the outback towns, are, you know, um, one of the fellows, uh, Peter from Outback Tourism, said, well, Winton have their Vision Splendid uh, Outback Film Festival the week before Big Red Bash. But he said, he said that the overall view of, of the town is they actually get more tourism benefit out of Big Red Bash than the film festival that they're putting on because of all the people coming through the town to the mm-hmm. bash. You know, so it's great. It's it's the dispersion and the spread of tourism to all these little towns, and we're really uh, happy to work with every town. Every town comes to us and says, "Can you help us with this or that? I'll promote this or that." Yeah, whatever. We will promote everything and anything because it gives our patrons more experiences and more you know wider variety of things to do on the way. So you know, it's really we win between you know, ourselves and the other towns and other businesses who are taking advantage of the of the people coming through. Yeah, I love that attitude and that collaborative approach. And yeah, it's such a massive opportunity for businesses to leverage a captive audience. Like Windora, <laughs> the day after, like I've never seen such a lineup for fuel. Um, but the pub did such a good job, you know, they were so organised um, in terms of their meals, they knew what to expect. So they had entertainment, the meals, they, they were so efficient. Lots of beer flowing, you know, it was such a good night. And that is such a classic example of how a town and a business can leverage an opportunity that's just in their neighbouring shire. I, I just think that's classic. I love it. Yeah, well, we stopped and had a talk to Ian and Marilyn at the, at the pub there at Windora, and they, they had a great time on the, you know, they're very busy and everything, but they, they love it because it's just uh, brings a huge injection into the, into the business and, you know, the, mm. the, just the festive atmosphere of the town. It's um, they do something similar, obviously, for Birdsville races. So they do the Abbey, you know, international Abbey race on, on the lead into Birdsville races. So, um, and the, but they now do all this other stuff for Bash, and it's great. You know, people uh, people love calling into Windor, and you know they'll sit in the fuel queue for four kilometres for a couple of hours. But you know, most people don't mind, and it's a good chance to you know, it's like a bit of a caravan show. You can walk up and down and check out all the caravans or. <laughs> people in the queue and just make friends or you know whatever and it's it's all pretty orderly but it's just part of the part of what happens and if people know and expect that it's it's not it's not a big deal yeah absolutely hey greg what do you find the most effective marketing or media channels for big red bash and you might have already kind of addressed this in terms of your comments around the social and particularly the pr and media side so, yeah, I'm interested to know what do you find the most effective and, and, and why have they been the most effective for you? Um, I think the most effective we find is social media. You know, if you add everything else up, it's probably social media. We do, we ask, when people buy a ticket, we ask the question, where did you find out about the Big Red Bash? And uh, 
you know, we've got about 10 categories and you, when you bought a ticket, you probably would have seen that. And it's, um, I think, 50, between 55% to 60% of people said, oh, word of mouth, friends or family told me about it. So it's the old word of mouth. And I think, um, well, social media is probably sits behind a lot of that word of mouth because it's people, you know, that's how people speak to each other nowadays a lot through social media, but yeah, as, it, as it's made. But then, then the next biggest category of where people found out about it was Facebook. We say Facebook and they say Facebook. So it's all, you know, and that was like nearly 20%. So like out of word of mouth, nearly 60% of Facebook, 20%, close to between 75 and 80%. Of people are finding out about it through friends and family or Facebook, and then all the other money we spend on everything else, <laughs> everything else, which is all the lots of money that makes up the other twenty odd percent of people who find out about it. So I think that that answers it pretty much, yeah. pretty much, uh, pretty yeah. obvious from, from that. Yeah, it is, and I guess I mean, although you say you know social media, it, it's a you know a massive marketing tool, and yeah, it may not be as costly as some of those other more traditional channels. It's now it's the time involved in managing social media. Like it's, and this is the other thing with other festivals and events is, you know, I like to encourage events to do some training around digital marketing and social media because if they can get that nailed and do that well, it's such a cost saving from their marketing budget, but it's also very effective. So do you, um, how do you manage your social media? I do a lot of it and our PR firm does some of it. We have a bit of a strategy, but it's sort of, um, I tend to find that when I do posts and I do stuff ads, I'm sort of I'm pretty much in our target market. So I sort of speak to our our followers, you know, like feel like they're mate or whatever, you know. So and, and that seems to create really good engagement. So I sort of have a bit of a I guess intuition of the sort of things to say, what they hear, what they want to see, and try and interact with people on a you know more personal basis. Because a lot of we see a lot of you know events might their pages might be more like advertising, you know, like it's a bit slick and a bit shiny and it's a bit you know uh cold so i try and make sort of some of our posts a bit more you know person to person and even though it's a an event or not a person it's you know trying that conversational tone and engagement i find it helps a fair bit on our on our facebook page yeah absolutely uh, yeah, you know and then we do some advertising as well and through facebook we spend a bit of money targeting particular groups and advertising and seeing what works and what doesn't work and that reach but like we do we do no paid advertising over the period of the bash and over that sort of uh 10 days you know in the lead up to the bash and just after the bash out you know we had reach of about 1.6 million reach and you know engagement of 140,000 people so that just shows the the you know how powerful that channel is it's immediate and it's and it's happening right there and it's you know it, it just has enormous reach and impact so you just got to you know, just got to sort of leverage that, I guess. And as I say, most people, you know, with the percentage of people finding out about the event through Facebook and our ability to put those great event images out and videos, we've got that uh, video past 30 the other day. Hopefully we'll have that out on our Facebook page tomorrow and, and through other channels. So, um, yeah, it's a great, great medium. Yeah, fantastic. My final question, Greg, what would be the biggest marketing tip to other regional and rural festivals that don't perhaps have the same budget? As you, ah, rob a bank. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I guess yeah. I think um, I think social media and Instagram tend to me they tend to give you the most bang for buck, but it's not something they can do like straight away because you've got to build up your audience. You've got to build up your, if you like, the your page and, and build it up over time. So I think 
definitely to spend a good portion of your resources in that area, whether it's Instagram, and I guess it depends on your your market. I mean, we've got a small Instagram following of you know, 4,000 or so, and but our target market tends to be more the Facebook-type people, uh, but we are going to move more into Instagram and trying to rev that up as well. But, yeah, I think that's that's really a great place Not to... market is, right? Yeah, and, and I guess, as I say, it's, it's trying to understand who your, who your target market is and understanding you know, how to connect to that particular target market. And it's different for every type of event, I guess. And you know, as I said, we, we try to connect to the four driver and outback traveller and adventurer and that sort of stuff and in the sort of um, more mature de- demographic and that sort of worked for us over time. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. Thank you.